Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 25. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is my friend Stephen Christian, best known as the frontman for Amber Lynn. Stephen released a fourth album with his solo project, Anchor and Braille, in spring of 2020. He's also a pastor and worship leader, holds a master's degree, and has studied psychology and maintains a passionate interest in nonprofit humanitarian work. Stephen and I had a fascinating conversation not only about the development of his personal belief system and adherence to the Christian faith, but also about the career arc of Anne Berlin, being on that rocket ship, going up into the stratosphere, and then the sort of plateauing and come down that's involved with that, and the turning point and crossroads that all professional musicians eventually seem to face where their heart is pulled in other directions. Real life, pragmatic practicalities come into play. I honestly think that that portion of our conversation is almost required listening for anyone who's thinking of starting a band, has started a band, at any point in that arc that you may be. I think you might get something out of the things we talk about and the insight that Stephen offers. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy it. And the best way you can support us is to leave a five-star rating and a nice little review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You can check out past episodes and have a look at the newly relaunched and redesigned NoPrizeFromGod.com, which features deeper looks at some of our guests and some of the topics that we've talked about. No Prize From God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network, which includes Speak and Destroy, a podcast about Metallica, and Pop Curse, which is musicians talking movies. So here it is, my conversation with Stephen Christian. This is No Prize From God. says you're in Los Angeles, but I thought you were in Florida. Yeah, I'm in Florida. I think I, I got set up on Skype in when I was living in LA for that year and a half. So I was going to say, I thought that was a, a brief moment. I was like, man, am I that behind on 
was no 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 it was a it was a quick quick jaunt out there recorded a record decided to stay and then decided i'm not even i don't even live here i live nowhere i live on a bus so just yeah, you know yeah oh. <laughs> are you in los angeles uh yeah i'm in los alamitos which is the northernmost point of orange county okay so about okay. 20, 20 minutes from but yeah I, I grew up in indiana but i've been here since 2001 in various various parts of california nice. southern california mostly nice yeah man so uh this podcast basically the gist of it the elevator pitch i was looking at the religion and spirituality category it's one of those things where i feel like most great creative works come from you're looking for something and it doesn't exist and so you decide to create it you know you wish there was a band that sounded like this plus this so then you just start one kind of thing um and it was a similar thing where i was you know looking for podcasts in that religion spirituality category and the vast majority of what i was finding was either militant atheist stuff um new agey self-help stuff or uh, mainline right-wing evangelical prosperity gospel like that was just like you know and i thought where's the conversation about life's big questions for everyone else and then i started thinking about in the music world in particular and then how that also branches out into film and television and a lot of other mediums how many people i've come across or know or have been interested in that have really unique and interesting experiences and viewpoints on all of this stuff that doesn't fall into any of those categories i just mentioned you know that that lives even um a little bit outside even people that i know who are adherents to a particular faith tradition tend to be really interesting people who either came into it in some kind of sideways way or have like a different kind of take on it so yeah that was really the the, the whole idea of the podcast was um so this, this podcast is no prize from god yes and then that okay and then do you have a, another podcast called speak and destroy or is that just the email i have speak and destroy uh stream and destroy is the email and destroy okay. and speak and destroy is my podcast about metallica nice i just have people on that uh are either influenced by or were influences on or have some direct or indirect connection to metallica and we talk about metallica for an hour so yeah it's i've had uh gary holt from exodus rob flynn from machine head matt from avenge sevenfold uh lizzie hale from hailstorm and then i've also had you know the guy who engineered kill em all who's like never done anything else you've you've heard of um i've had uh guys from anti-nowhere league and saxon and diamond head and like a bunch of those bands that influenced metallica and that's been fun um amazing man yeah but that's been fun so this one yeah it's been uh I call it conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. So yeah, so anything that just that I come across that is like, well, that's trippy and weird and interesting. Yeah, I like I like to go for it. So what you need to get on is um, is this incredible, uh, incredible, incredible artist? Not artist. I don't know if he paints, but he's an incredible author, speaker. He's probably like as close to a, as a guru priest as I will ever come. It's a guy named Richard Rohr. The name's familiar. He's based out of um, he's based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. His his um, 
man, I would say disciples are many in number, and the many of them have gone on to do other great things. Chris and Felina Hewitts, they write uh, a lot about um, contemplative prayer as well as the Enneagram. I'm sure you've heard of the Enneagram by now. Mm-hmm. Chris has wrote, written several books on the Enneagram. Wow. It's probably top five foremost voices on the Enneagram. So I could give you all this contact information. Now, Richard Ward, that's out of my – he's out of, he's next level. But uh, And there's also this really – my um, – I don't know, one of my uh, – I don't even know what you'd call him. Closest, yeah, thing to me for to my own personal priest is another guy, an author named Paul Pastors. He lives next to a convent out in the mountains of Oregon, and is as close to the Zen master as I will ever come, you know, into knowing. So, anyway, I got a cool, a couple cool names that would just be like just conversations that are just like, wait, wait, what, you know? So this is already worth the price of admission. Yeah, I'm uh, pretty soon. It's funny because I've. He's been down to do it since I started the podcast, and it's just, it's me that's been putting it off. Uh, but a guy named Peter Rollins, who's a theologian, author, speaker, I've gotten to be friendly with him over the last couple of years, and uh, his work more so than any other in my own life, in my own faith walk, has been the most influential to me. And it's one of those things where it's kind of so big, and yeah, when you hear him talk, there's a lot of like, whoa, that that even I, as someone who's a professional journalist that interviews people by trade, I'm like, I'm intimidated about having, he's not an intimidating guy at all, but I'm still kind of intimidated about like, what would that conversation even be? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Um, It's much more comfortable to talk to Isan about um, church burnings and murders (laughs) (laughs) than to talk about faith and doubt and certainty and pyro theology and all this, all Peter's work. Um, so yeah, man. So the, one of the things I really enjoy doing is really digging into the formative years. And, uh, I grew up in Indianapolis and Wikipedia says you were born in Kalamazoo, yes. which if you've toured and traveled a lot, like you and I have, and lived in different parts of the country, like we have Indiana and Michigan, we may as well have grown up next door to each other. That's very true. I learned that when I when I first got to Southern California, my office mate just you know luck of the draw. My office mate, who's, who's still one of my very close friends, was from Iowa, and I didn't I don't know that I'd ever even really been to Iowa very much. Probably just driven through it a bunch. Right. But the two of us in an office in Santa Monica at MTV together, it was like we'd known each other all of our lives. And it, yeah. You know, and, and he was also the uh, only other. Um, believer that I, not to say that there aren't plenty of others at that company, but at the time he was the only other person of faith that I knew and was in regular conversation with. So it was just really interesting how that, you know, we would appear to have nothing in common, but then put in that environment is like we had everything in common. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, uh, tell me a little bit about, um, early Stephen Christian life. You know, I mean, do we want, uh, you know, the, the religious, kind of the religious aspect, or are we talking about just, little, the whole just kind of in general, like, you know, two parent household, single, single yeah. parent siblings, and then, and then, yeah, and then it went in where um, ideas of faith and, and that sort of stuff entered your life. So I grew up in a traveling family, um, which I'll explain in just a second. I had two parents, big, big family, 
both sides kind of coming from out of out of Michigan, the St. Joe Benton Harbor Niles area. And but my father would move around a lot. He would, you know, we would be I lived in 12 different places the first 12 years of my life. I um I have three younger siblings and they were in inevitably my best friends, you know, in, in in some way, shape or form, simply because again, moving around that much doesn't allow for many um, deep connections. Uh, faith was always a part of my life, you know, since day zero. Um, it was it was ingrained in my in me from my parents. Both sets of grandparents were passionately passionately involved with the church. Um, my my grandfather's story, uh, my opa from the Ukraine, was met Jesus uh, by a missionary over there, and just the the amount of stress strain crazy stories, mythological to anyone else outside of my family who would know them to be true by eyewitness accounts, escaping from communist, uh, you know, Russians from, from the Ukraine into Nazi Germany and then finding the, their way um, underground through refugee camps out to, to free Germany and then it finally eventually making it over to the United States. They were very much thankful and grateful to, obviously, the Judeo-Christian God, my grandparents on the other side were were very much ingrained. Same difference, not not so much the war torn uh, testimony, but but more like you know this is all we know, this is what we've known, we've been raised in the church. My grandfather got saved pretty early on. I want to say about 19 years old, 18 years old, um, out of a life of you know at that time I'm sure was very much like scrutinized, but we would know it as just you know occasional drinker and dancer and you know, but at the time that was the misfit. Um, so, uh, you know, but from that, from those moments on, I think, you know, that, that side of the family was very much, um, Christian. And I, you know, when I say saved, I, I do mean like just simply a belief as you and I would call, you know, saved, um, would just be a, a belief that, that Jesus died and was resurrected by God. And so, you know, but growing up, we had gone to my, my parents went from both of them were raised Baptists. We went to um, an Assemblies of God church Uh, that was, I feel um, at the time was incredible for my parents. They they truly were invested into many different revivals or as as the Pentecostal would call outpourings around the country, around other countries, um, you know, and uh, that I feel was very detrimental to my faith. Uh, early on, because I felt like Pentecostals, and this is again, I don't want to say to each his own. What I will say is, I love and respect my father, and if he says this is an experience that happened to me, I don't know any different than not to trust him. So I do believe some people out there experience are experiencing God in that way, truly are. Um, just as I believe there's somebody in a Catholic church who's by themselves right this moment weeping, experiencing God in that way. I've never known God in either of those situations. So when I was growing up, you know, there would be, uh, if you if you study any of the Pentecostal movies, mo- movements from the 90s or 2000s, early 2000s, it was a lot of um, emotional upheaval, very much a, a, um, self-conjuring in some, in some, in, in my interpretation, mm-hmm. for other people's experiences with with a God through these kind of laughing or running around the church or that's where you uh, hear speaking in tongues and, and even maybe snake handling and but yeah, faith, I think faith healing and that sort of stuff. Healing. And, you know, they would say, you know, hanging from chandeliers is an old expression, 
But in my mind, in my 16-year-old mind, I said, if A is true, which is there is a God plus B, um, that, that he shows himself, reveals himself to mankind through these emotional experiences, and I wasn't experiencing it, therefore mm. C equals that God does not exist. Yeah, that's sort of the, the Jenga piece that you pulled out of your, your faith tower. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And so from around 16 to age 18, I feel like I was very much into the social element of church. It was a social life. Again, I didn't have many friends growing up from zero to 12. Uh, and so now I had found a social group that ex accepted me for. And, and, and when you say traveling, um, how about how long would you be in any given place through, through your the short childhood? Term place would be would have been South Carolina. We lived there for about two months and the longest would be two years tops. Tops. Wow. Man, two two months somewhere when you're a kid. I mean, that's, ever, you know, when you think about, you know, we were joking earlier before we got on about the uh, mysterious ebb and flow of time during shelter in place. But uh, when you're a kid, you know, it's like the, the five years is so much more to you when you're 15 than, you know, the age 10 to 15 than what five years becomes in your twenties, thirties, forties, uh, man, to be, to only be somewhere for a couple of months is just this. Yeah. That had to be difficult. Yeah. How do you maintain any bonds in terms of friendships and that sort of thing? And, and obviously, you know, we're of a generation that it's not like you were, um, texting with your friends in South Carolina as soon as you left that, no, that didn't exist. <laughs> no, and uh, and also like as far as you know school systems, you, you know I, every time you move, a new school system has a new set of rules and ways to educate you, and so yeah. therefore, I mean, I got so far behind in schooling. More more teachers that you have to say no, it's P H, it's not V. Yep. It's <laughs> just literally every every ground zero part of you has to that be very true reestablished in a new place. And that was tough. And that was, but, uh, but around, around the age of, so again, from 16 to 18, I would call it more of a social, um, you know, consciousness as yeah. far as my, my, why I wanted to go to church, you know, finally we had. So you're getting enrichment and enjoyment out of just the fellowship being around other people, but you're also questioning like, Hey, all this supernatural stuff that everyone around me seems to be experiencing. I don't feel that. So absolutely, absolutely. Especially, yeah. you know, and I didn't have a choice. It wasn't like I was like, hey, guys, can we go to a, a different non-denominational church right down the way? Yeah. So it was just tough. Uh, but I, but again, so so that that experience happened. And then so around age 18, I, I went to uh, on a mission trip. My my grandmother basically said, "Hey, listen, if you go on this missions trip, I'll help pay the you know the bulk of the finances." Well, in my eight, 17 and a half year old mind, I thought to myself, "Man, what a great escape! What a great escape from high school, from you know parents, and you know finding myself and individuality." And you add it all up, you know, let's go. So at the time, I had you know very long surfer hair. You know, I surfed at the time. And so I went on this mission trip and I went to go into Miami, Florida, and the whole presentation was was a, was a drama presentation to locals. And I was going to the Ukraine and I chose the Ukraine because that's where my family was from. I had sure. never been. Just wanted to kind of see where my roots were from. And um, so when I was in Miami, Florida, you know, they said, OK, we're going to we're giving out drama parts. 
you know, who's going to play it? I want to play the character of death. He wore a black robe and he had a big sickle and he walked around and he had one part and it was over and I could go back to exploring the Ukraine. Well, at the end of the time when, when they were delving out parts, I'm noticing that the character of Jesus is not being, <laughs> is not being handed out. And I'm telling when I say I phoned it in, I was doing, they're like, show me happy. And I was like, happy, show me sad. <laughs> I, so I, I'm trying Lion to face, rawr, lemon yeah. face. Ooh. I'm trying to that, that death character part with a giant. <laughs> You're um, like, I am projecting death <laughs> void. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, at the time, you know, at the kind of narrowed down, I was the last one. And they said, okay, Stephen, and you're going to be playing Jesus. Well, at that moment, it was like a, a blunt object just hit my chest because in the same way that I always thought, even as an early Christian, you know, like I thought it was funny with metal that they would wear the pentagrams. Because in my head, even though I was kind of like very, you know, not not acute, not in the know, I always thought like, man, even if I didn't believe in Satan, I don't know if I'd play around with that. I just, I don't <laughs> right. know. You know Why? I, I don't the, know. the risk versus reward of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Scal's wager here came into effect yeah. in my little mind. And I was yeah. like, I don't know if I just play, I don't know why. Well, the same the same logic was placed on this. Like, oh my gosh, here I am, playing a character, and I'm not sure. I, I was I was I applied the same theory. Why would I do that? Why would I play this character? And what if it exists? Am I going to get you know? Like, I'm not saying God's a Thor God. He's going to come out and smite you out of heaven. But I I also had a little bit of reverence for what my grandparents' was experiences were. My parents. So that night. I went up to my hotel room. I was all by myself. Everybody else was meeting downstairs, and it was lightning outside. And this, and uh, just, <laughs> no pun intended. You're waiting yeah. to be struck by. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I remember the rains came down, and I just went out on the balcony, and I and I had my, I think the closest thing to my, uh, what's that, Lieutenant Dan moment, to where, you know, I got out on that balcony in the middle of the lightning and thunder and and rain, and just started yelling. And then at that moment, after I got it all out and I'm in tears, just like, where are you, God? Kind of just having my little battle as if I could ever win that. It kind of dawned on me that I was literally having a conversation, hmm. which presupposed in my own head that that I'm talking to something. Therefore, something had to exist. Now, what that was, was it the Judeo-Christian? Was it Odin? I'm not sure. I don't know. But I definitely... Everything within me was was, you know, just pouring out. And you know, even the Bible says you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And a lot of people they say, well, when I met Jesus, it felt like honey came all over me, or I I felt this peace that just it wasn't that for me. It was a it was a another blunt object that was just kind of like a catharsis that I'm talking to something externally that I was I could not visibly see, but also that you know at that moment it existed. It existed. Um, and so I went on the trip, you know, just kind of like, hey, I'm at least going to be you know, open to the idea that there is a God. Let me start from from scratch, because being raised in a Christian home has its advantages, but it also has a dis disadvantage in, in that in that you're only you've only learned the theology of your parents and of teachers and Sunday school teachers. And you're picking up actions here and words here and in uh, sermons from a very finite group of individuals. So, um, you know, I began to just study the red letters, you know, and that's mm -hmm. a fancy way of saying, I just looked back at the, just the teachings of Jesus mm -hmm. not the Testament, not the new Testament to try to dissect what was the noise and the rattle of a church 
compared to like what was the foundational truth of what they would have called their God, their their God incarnate, their Jesus himself. And what I found was the most altruistic story of my entire life. One that I felt human could not create because it's the antithesis of everything I want. I want to go get hammered. I want to go, you know, like sleep around with it. I mean, the, the barbaric human in me wants to go sleep with everyone, wants to go experience the drugs, wants to go, uh, you know, all this just maddening, wants to be my own God, wants to be rich and powerful and greedy and all the things that my nature says. And here's a guy that's doing literally the antithesis, mm -hmm. who is saying it is better to give than to receive, who is healing the poor, who is ministering and, and, and telling the children to come to him, which was which was fupa back then. You don't you don't talk to children. You don't associate. You don't bless children. You don't talk to women. We, you know the 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 Jews would have said, "Praise God that I wasn't born a dog or a woman." And here's a Jew talking to women and healing them and telling them about real life and life more abundantly. And to me, I was just like, you and know, sinners. You know, talking to sin sinners. Sinners. Every, everyone cat. to a man to a woman. Cats. Yeah. Prostitutes. You know, and James had it right, you know, a couple um, to the right of the red letters. He said, and this is pure religion is to love the widows and orphans and keep himself unspotted from the world. And that's what drew me in was just the the utter altruism, the utter, you when know. You it's interesting when you talk about it, it running counter to your uh, more base sort of primitive intuitions. When you think about the commandment, the greatest of all commandments, right, to love thy neighbor as thyself, and you think about even our culture, for all of the advancements in technology and medicine and, you know, all of the, the wondrous uh, moments of human achievement since the time of Jesus walking the earth, that, like, that still runs so counter to who most of us are, right? Like, because we don't, we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. We distrust and fear and recoil from our neighbor by nature. You know, it's like where everyone's out to get us and we're suspicious and we're um, always on guard. And, and so, yeah, to think about just how profound that simple commandment really is and how hard it is, you know, people think about the Christian faith and in terms of rules and, you know, don't do this and don't do that. And, Man, that's the loving your neighbor as yourself is probably the hardest rule <laughs> to follow. As much as hard as that is for us all to admit, you know, because we all want to think of ourselves as loving and giving. And but at the end of the day, we are all our culture teaches us to be very distrustful of of uh, our neighbors. True, very true. And then our nature ego is is completely egocentric. You know, you can't. I don't know. A lot of people are altruistic, but it's a learned behavior or a learned response or something mm. that faith dictates or perhaps their parents. And... For performative, as people like to say these days, yeah. you know, a performative altruism. Look at me. Yes. <laughs> you know. yeah. uh, I totally agree. But, you know, again, going back to the just the, that's what allure. Well, that was the lure for me into knowing more about Jesus Christ. And so they're on that trip after kind of weeks and weeks of every morning they would say, get up and have an hour long devotion time, you know, and by yourself. And so after weeks of this, just studying this guy, Jesus, and then, you know, under, already knowing kind of the history and, and, and a lot of things that I was, again, some of the positives of being raised in a church was I, I felt like I, I, you know, I knew what the next steps to do with my walk uh, with. And so 
you know, it was that what I believed in my heart after after kind of studying those those particular scriptures. I knew my faith wasn't going to look like my parents. That's you know, I knew that for sure. And perhaps the denominational choices that they chose growing up and what they chose to, you know, to participate in even at that current moment. However, I knew that my path and trajectory was for the faith of the, the way or Christianity. And um, on that trip, there was a time when I was talking to an elderly lady and the Iron Curtain had just fallen. So the entire Ukrainian culture's demeanor was very heavy set, dark. And I'm not talking about weight. I'm talking about like almost a spiritual weight, mm -hmm. uh, an aura of heaviness. And to tell her about Jesus and what I had experienced in saying, you know, and, and saying someone loves you, someone cares about you, someone, you know, knew you, knows your name. And she lit up and she started to cry and cry. Well, at the same time, there was a man about... I would I would say 39 to 45 years old and at the time I was only I had just turned 18 and he was to my right and he had he had horn rim glasses on black uh, bowl cut for the most part all around and he's watching me talk and he's watching her and he's watching me and he's watching her and I'm telling him all this and he just stops he goes stop so are you wait do you really believe this do you really believe this and it was that morning, that that moment when I just stopped and like, you know, looked internally was just like, oh, my gosh, am I reciting this? Do I believe it? And I said, yes. And something like a sonar pulse is the only way I can describe it. I just went. And the Bible says, you know, confessing with your mouth and believing your heart. And that's 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 the only thing you need to do to be saved, to find your way to Jesus Christ. And whatever that is, I felt the final kind of connection that I had, I believed it in my heart and I had confessed it with my mouth. And so it was, um, it was that it was at that moment when I when I chose my 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 path that I'm currently on. You know, and isn't that interesting? Because I think that's something people that grew up uh, without any sort of uh, faith tradition at all, let alone you know a Judeo-Christian one. There's such to me, and this comes up in these conversations on this podcast, which I'm really thankful for. There's there's a difference between being raised in something, and the moment when, as you so beautifully described, when you discover it and and embrace it for yourself. And that isn't to say that as parents we shouldn't raise our children up in our faith, but there's got to be this understanding, right, of like, at some point. It has to be what they choose for themselves or what is it even, you know, it is just, you know, yeah, maybe it's some nice uh, moral codes to live by and, and some great friendship and community. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not to, I don't mean to be dismissive of those aspects of, of any of the world's faiths, but, but there is something that I think gets overlooked too often in conversation, which is like, there's gotta, there's gotta be room. You gotta give enough space for a person to, you know, whether they're 16, 17, whether they're 30, <laughs> you know, whenever it happens for them to have their own encounter that's meaningful and and finally, you know, ties it all together for them where they're like, Absolutely. oh, okay, you know. I'm a pastor and, and, and my wife and I early on when we had children basically said, we're never going to coerce. We're never going to say you have to, you know, you must. 
this has to be their decision. I mean, it says in the Bible, train up a child in the way, in the bent that they're, you know, that they're supposed to go. And so we want to give them all the knowledge, but I will never say to my child, you better walk up to that altar. You better go find, yeah. you know, it's not, that can't happen because even though the, you know, the, the Old Testament Talmud says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I agree. But they're also, like you're saying, there has to come a point in time where there's the age of, of responsibility to where they have to, you know, answer to not just their dad. They now have to answer to a much, much higher power. And um, because of that, yeah, you're absolutely right. They, they need to be free. And there's an emotional and intellectual maturity that has to take place in order for that to really take hold. And, and it's funny how it all kind of comes full circle because I'm also, you know, one of the one of my favorite things about scripture is the talk of a, a childlike faith, which is for me as an adult, what I eventually fell into uh, that, that kind of full circle moment. Right. And instead of trying to overthink and outsmart God, when I decided to adopt that more childlike faith look is when th things really transformed for me. But um, at the same time, though, yeah, what I'm getting at is uh, at a certain point as we develop as as humans, you inevitably come to a crossroads where you kind of go, okay, this is what I grew up with. This is what I was taught, but is this what I believe? You know, and it sounds like you had a very powerful, definitive experience with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's important. So where does music enter in the equation for you, both in terms of being inspired by it and then that, that inevitable crucial turning point where you went from, okay, music is something I enjoy versus this is something I have to participate in. I got to be part of it. I want to make it. I want to be on stage. I want to, you know, perform. I'll, I'll, you know, what was, so tell me about music kind of introdu being introduced into your life. And then that turning point of, all right, I'm not just, I'm not just going to be someone who loves music. I'm going to be someone whose part is in it. Yeah. So I, I both, luckily for me, both the sets of, of my family, uh, my grandparents on either side, both sides were very musically inclined, you know, just every Christmas, every family gathering would somehow inevitably end into mass singing sessions, lots of hymns, uh, you know, choral, uh, my, you know, choral, uh, you know, music, violin, somebody played trumpet, you know, my piano, just there was a lot of instruments. Uh, my my grandfather, who I only met, I only remember meeting once. I'm sure I had several encounters with him when I was a child. But he, you know, he died before I got to know him. But my opa he, from the Ukraine, he was said to have played 12 different instruments. And even in the refugee, every refugee camp they went into, he would assemble a choir and an orchestra. So, that, so it was very much, very much genetic and culturally a part of like who I was, was just being around music. And I, at the time, awesome. just, every family was like this. Yeah. You just I, take, you take it for granted. Yeah. yeah. Four, four part harmonies were not kind of like a weird, an oddity for me. Four part harmonies were just very natural. Like, you know, just like my, my dad's on bass and she's doing soprano and they're just all singing in unison. It didn't, you know, it never occurred to me like, oh man, like this, how do, how do all these people genetically know how to sing? You know, this is crazy. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it was, I was around, I was around it culturally in my family. And again, and again, I think it's a big genetic part of, you know, I feel that you're pr pretty much predispositioned to sing or not, you know, it just is. I think it's in the same way you could say, oh man, I would love to be six two, you know, <laughs> 
you can do to help that. You can get some risers for your shoes. You can maybe do some stretching and have, you know, medically have them stretch you. But honestly, you're either 6'2 or you're just not, you know, it's and um, so singing. That's why, you know, vocally, I can't really take any credit. It's not like people like great voice. I'm like, oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kind of like. I don't know. Thank my grandparents. You know, yeah, thank it's like my somebody mom. being like, "Nice bone structure." Like, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yes, oh, I worked I, very hard at it. Yes, <laughs> I did. these cheekbones didn't grow them. Yeah, it's almost I did. Um, but uh, you know, so I was always around it. Well, coming up, we we stopped traveling when I was about twelve, you know, twelve, thirteen years old in Winter Haven, Florida. Winter Haven is a was was at the time about twenty seven thousand people. Very much a redneck community. I mean, it's to this day very much orange groves, pickup trucks, and whatever your mind you know insinuates that to, that little town to look like is is exactly on on point. Well, it's either that you know you either go get drunk with the rednecks in the orange groves or you start a band. And luckily for me, there was a lot of great local bands: um, Syrup, Faceless, uh, just a bunch of just all these like you know uh, coat hanger. Uh, you know, all just a bunch of them, a bunch of bands that would play at this little place called Friar Tucks. And again, I was really drawn into the community gang-like atmosphere, you know, because of having no friends as soon as a few would accept. And as you know, the underground is very accepting. You know what I'm saying? If you're, I don't care if you're a metalhead, punk rocker, you know, I don't care. It's just, it's a gang. You know, they, they like, assume, these are my people. This is my they family. Are. We found each other. Yeah, yeah exactly. And because Winter Haven was so small, all those all those people, the metal people, the you know the post everything hardcore, whatever you want to call, it, they all melded. And there was probably like thirty five of us. You know what I'm saying? But out of that thirty five, which I in would, a town of that size, that's like an army. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, and out of the thirty five, probably twenty five of us were in bands. So I was in a crappy band, you know, the guy next to me is in a crappy band, and we're all just kind of like hanging out, watching, you know, the local scene kind of grow. Yeah, it's like um, that thing where five bands play a show together, and the audience is basically the oh, other four bands while you're playing. <laughs> they're either playing the show, or they're, you know, they're going to play next week at the show. Yeah. And um, But um, it was a very accepting culture. Got to know some of them through, because they went to my high school, and someone had graduated my high school. And so I just right around the age of, uh, of of 18, 19, I began to form a punk rock band with some friends and uh, called Saga. And it was horrific. We were the worst band alive. However, you know, it kind of propelled me into saying, you know, I want to take this seriously. I love the I love the invigoration. I love the emotional aspect of it. It was it was kind of, it was I want to say punk rock, but it, the band was so bad. It gives an insult. It's an insult. to <laughs> Well, what, were, what were some of the uh, the reference points that you guys were were sharing and drawing from in terms of what who you wanted to sound like? Uh, oh yeah, I mean the the bands that we wanted to sound like, I would say was a Veil and Hot Water Music. Oh wow, yeah, well, I mean that's very uh, Hot Water Music. It's very Florida of you. Oh, very. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, a Veil is another. I think I think a Veil kind of started that sound and Hot yeah. Water kind of was right under that. And then we wished we could, you know, but we couldn't. Yeah. You know, and, 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 but we tried, we tried our best. And then some of the guys were super into like, um, face to face. So there's a lot of melodies involved there. And obviously Green Day and just that whole, just hodgepodge. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like just Rancid was a big one, big mm-hmm. influence. All, just all that kind of like that kind of lumped together. 
Uh, every song sounded different, but I definitely felt like, oh man, I love this energy. And a lot of bands that we could play with were were um, were very much uh, hardcore. And so that's kind of where we gleaned our stage presence from was, mm. was because to us, like we saw a bunch of bands that would just stand still and not move. And for us, it was kind of like, no, 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 I've seen energy. I want to portray that energy, even though our music sounds like this or is a different vein yeah. of rock. You'll never see us standing still. It's, we've got to we've got to move around. So, you know, I that's just the visuals that I grew up with in watching and being excited about seeing. And uh, you're like, Avail has a guy in the band who doesn't even play anything. He just jumps yeah. around. Yeah. <laughs> so did we. Was- you had a bobo. <laughs> We really, really did. That's and he awesome. Was great. We had a great time with him. He didn't really do anything. He just jumped around the stage, jumped in the alt crowd, and nice. dude, he was the best. We I always it. think about Avail, obviously, and the, and the Boston's. That's the other group I think about, where it's like there's just a, just some dude up there. <laughs> it's there awesome is. though. Yeah, there is. Isn't Dropkick Murphys? Is there one? I'm not sure. There's so many people in that band. I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. He could have been there. I know that the band photo is like you know. A gazillion people, so. Yep, that's very true. So, uh, yeah, that's where kind of like the where music kind of started. That's where it was birthed from. So I know that's amazing. And so I know um, a lot of our mutual friends probably, too, that were raised in Christian households and really into music. There was always a, a schism of butting up against the so-called secular music and Christian bands. And I know a lot of people who's first few loves were, you know, the Christian music scene out of necessity because their parents were like, well, you can listen to that music, but it, they better be Christian bands. Um, it doesn't sound like you had that problem because it seems like you were familiar with a lot of general market. I'm doing air quotes. Yes. Uh, artists. Uh, what was, was there any kind of push and pull or, or give and take there in the household as far as what you were listening to and Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. I mean, I I was not allowed to listen to to air quotes general market secular music, whatever you want to call it. It was that was not a thing. I I think one of the greatest moments or failures of my life, depending on how you want to you know call it, is that I was in South Carolina, living there like I mentioned for only two months. And I and I went over to my neighbor's house. He invited me over, and um, I walked in there and. I looked, you know, I, I looked at all his posters in his room. And I was like, who are all these women? <laughs> and he's like, oh, what are you talking about? This is heavy metal, man. And I was like, heavy metal. Oh, I was like, oh, you know what? I was like, I love heavy metal. He's like, yeah, right. And I was like, no, I do. I I, I like heavy stuff. And he's like, really? He's like, yeah, come here. Let me play this tape. I wish this I could make this up. Took him over to my house, popped in a tape. You know, plopped it in. I pushed around. I knew exactly where. Pushed play, and here comes this classical, you know, classical stuff. And then, and he was like, "This isn't heavy metal." I was like, "Just wait, just wait. It's about to kick in." Gets building, it's building, it's building, and then suddenly, Amy Grant goes, "How should die? How should die? Echocardiogram." I, th- I thought you were going to say Striper, which was already going to be like, <laughs> oh, man, amazing. Ever talk to me again. Ever. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't believe it. I had just, played. you should go listen to that song. Al Shaddai, listen to the buildup and know at that moment I was trying to tell someone it was heavy metal. Oh, I'll, 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 I'll edit that into the episode. <laughs> you should. 
powerful. That's a powerful song. Oh, that's Man, amazing. Real touching. That's amazing. You know, yeah, that's like that's like some office style uh, cringe humor. That's like a scene you would write in a sitcom now. And I wouldn't <laughs> believe it if I watched it. I'd be like, yeah, right. That's never happened. Um, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> I love Dude, that you were getting his posters and you were like, who are all these chicks on the wall? <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. But <laughs> so, yeah. I was very much, um, yeah, you know, it wasn't until much later in life, till my late teenage years that I, I heard Led Zeppelin. I remember hearing Kiss for the first time and thinking it was a joke. I was like, no, 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 play me Kiss for real. Because see, in my little Christian, <laughs> that's, that's Knights in Satan's service. So right. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. you know i i don't know yeah That's you thought this head. was going to be deicide <laughs> yeah you know what is it cannibal christian cannibal or uh, christian death or cannibal corpse so i i just i all these you know that's what I was assuming. And so it was like, I would like to rock and roll. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Really play me kiss. I've heard all about these guys. You know, I've seen their faces as the, they're the Christian poster childs of what Satanism looks like. Yeah. Meanwhile, meanwhile, it's a couple of Christian or a couple of Jewish guys and a couple of Italian guys from the Bronx or whatever. It's like, yo, we want to write some love songs. Yeah. Let's write, <laughs> let's be the greatest marketing team of all time. <laughs> Man. I, anyway, it's, it's it's so yes, I wasn't really exposed early on to a lot and of different. You know, I just had on the podcast um, a couple episodes ago is Blackie Lawless from the band Wasp, which of course was we are sexual perverts and you oh. know and this and this and that. And um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, Blackie was saved at some point and still does Wasp, but doesn't perform a handful of those songs and. Um, the episode we did was like a Bible study. He's like, you know, recites chapter and verse. Uh, a very, a very interesting story that he has. Because at one point in that wall, in that wasp era, at their height, his girlfriend was a witch, and he was super into the occult and going to ritual stuff. And um, yeah, he's come all the way around to the Lord and has been uh, visiting historical sites, trying to uh, retrace the Paul's steps and. Just a complete, complete turnaround. It's pretty amazing. But yeah, but yeah, a lot of those bands that we thought of um, as, you know, evil, it's like they're not evil. They're just like dorks, you know, even <laughs> even Slayer, who were like kind of the poster, you know, the band that you would hold up as like the biggest, almost mainstream, like satanic band. Yeah. It's like you had one guy in the band who's a hardcore atheist. And that one's about it. No one in the band worships Satan. The singer who's singing those lyrics that he's not writing is a Catholic who's going to mass with his family on the weekends. You know, but it's like as a kid, though, it's like it, it's it's a very it seems very different. And then you kind of grow up and you're like, yeah, yeah. they're just dudes like any other dudes you might meet somewhere <laughs> for better or worse. I've uh, I, you know, I, I the same difference with uh, the band Ghost. Right. They said, you know, like I was talking to a mutual friend and they were just like, dude, these guys are complete dads. I mean, they are at picnics and on, at the park on the weekends. Sure. They, you know, they are, you know, driving their little Audi TTs around. It's yeah. just funny. They're just yeah, you, like, you, wanna, you think of them as in like a castle around a Ouija board, like levitating, writing yeah. their records. And it's like, nah, they're, you know, they got they got <laughs> they got to get off garage band because they got to go pick up the kids from daycare. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. It's great. I might stop by the Home Depot on the way home after. Do you mind, babe? Okay, thanks. So before Anne Berlin 
really took over in your life. Um, you were following sort of the more traditional, you know, college and, and that sort of thing. Um, what sort of path were you on initially before the band kind of took over and you were like, oh, I got I to gotta be full-time band guy? I was sure that I was going into nonprofit work. I didn't know whether I wanted to be the president of UNICEF or World Vision, but I was aiming at something and, and just heading that way. So I was graduating from the University of Central Florida, and I was working for this place called Catholic Heart at work camps. And they basically were um, just just that. They were work camps, like in the summer. It would be like Habitat for Humanity for Catholics. So they would go into a city. They would help build and reconstruct housing or fix roofs or start or work with Habitat for Humanity. And during the week, they would have games and shows and all that and stuff like, well, I would, you know, I was like a full-time staff member there. And when I was going to leave University of Central Florida, you know, they had offered me a job to go work there. So I was ecstatic, ecstatic. I was talking about, you know, let's, let's, let's make this an international venture. Let's, you know, let's go to the next level. We were talking about which countries we wanted to take this to. Well, right about, I would say about three or four weeks prior to me graduating UCF, I'm having conversations with the guys in the band, just saying, hey, I wanted to let you know, as soon as I'm out of college, I'm going in this direction. I'm going, you know, to work nonprofit. So we're going to have to, you know, kind of call it quits on, on Amberlynn. And we kind of all agreed on a timeline. Mm. And, a, and, um, and so they were, so, they, there wasn't a whole bunch of resistance where they're like, no, you can't do that. They were like, okay, we get it. Like, yeah, because it wasn't just me. It was all of us. It was kind of like, well, I mean, we weren't really going anywhere. We had just recorded some demos for mm. Matt Goldman in, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And we were just kind of like getting a little bit of buzz, but nobody's asking us to tour. No record labels are reaching out. So about two weeks before I graduate from UCF, my boss takes me for a ride. He takes me for a drive. We have to go to literally Home Depot to go pick up supplies to go help a, a building, you know, this to help build. And we're talking and he said, you know, man, I just want to let you know that that once you graduate, you know, you no longer have a job here. We're going to move on. We're going to go in a different direction. And I was shocked. I mean, I was just, I was replaying everything I did. Did I say something wrong? What did he not want to go international? Was I too aggressive? Like, what, you know, what, what did I do? And um, he never told me. Even to this day, I think about like six, uh, about four months ago, I reached out to him after all these years and just said, hey, thank you. You know, yeah. thank you for firing me. Yeah. I don't know why. And I didn't ask. I just said, you know, I appreciate that, you know, it just kind of life works out the way it should. You know, all right. things work out for the good for those who serve, you know, God and all this stuff. So thank you. I appreciate whatever voice you were listening to. You know, that's it. it you know, it only helped. And he, he, he responded, you know, that my, his kids were big fans and he's excited to where I was. But at the time, I had nowhere else to go. And so right after I graduated, I graduated in the end of May. And at the end of June, Amberlynn got their first contract like we signed our first contract we had some other interest from other labels and stuff like that but um but we finally ended up you signing certainly make a case for the idea that god was clearing the way for you yeah because imagine you having to make that decision giving me zero options to... that's great man i mean that's uh, great. decisions that's been great. made for you <laughs> this is what you're gonna do yeah that's amazing and then so take me through you know obviously we, we don't need to do the uh amberlin behind the music I, I won't torture you with that but uh, obviously the band, as bands tend to do, had that cycle where, uh, you know, up, 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 and then you kind of hit that plateau and then you're on cruise control. And I think 
you know, because we grew up watching, you know, U2 and Metallica and all of these bands that are really one in a million lightning in a bottle, you know, the chances of not only reaching that level of commercial success, but of sustaining a lineup for that matter. And, you know, the consistency of, of, uh, of operating at a certain level, it just doesn't really happen, you know? So even I, I, I found that in the underground scene in particular, bands often become really disillusioned at that first, the first moment that it's not up, 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 up. And uh, I, I'm reminded of an interview uh, I saw with Duff McKagan once on CNN. It was actually during the time he was out of Guns N' Roses and he was talking about how he'd gotten into, uh, he got like an economics degree or something and he was doing wealth management for musicians. And he was saying, you know, the problem is when a band has some success, they don't have anyone around them saying, okay, like you guys are playing 5,000 seaters. You've got a gold record, your singles in the top 10. This could be as good as it gets. So let's make some plans. You know, what are some other things you're interested in? You know, start some businesses, you know, figure out a way to kind of sustain still being a musician, but this and that. He's like, no, the person that says that to them gets fired for not believing in them. Everyone around a band says, top 10 single, we're going to number one. You know, 5,000 seaters, we're going to 10,000 seaters. You got a gold record, we're going platinum. And while it's important to have that drive and that ambition, that sort of uh, reasoned management of expectations doesn't seem to be very common in the music business. Um, now, I think Amberlynn, uh, you know, is, is more blessed than many bands uh, in the sense that, you know, people still care about the band. People still follow what you're doing outside of the band. Um, but what can you tell me about that time where, you know, was there a, a moment or a season in your life where you kind of went like, okay, this is, this is drawing to a natural conclusion. This has served its purpose and, you know, I, I'm feeling called to ministry, to, you know, worship leader, you know, the different things that have evolved in your life. What was that season like for you? I mean, it's a big it question. Came, I know. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it came in phases. It came in phases. That's for sure. It wasn't like, a, and then I woke up, Yeah. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, I, I decided I didn't want to be in the band. So, you know, it, I would say when we hit the major label, the, the band, and I'm going to, I'm going to leave this ambiguous for, um, for many, many different reasons. Sure. The band made some decisions that I didn't agree with. And I felt right then and there kind of like a proverbial, the, the passion was lost. It was kind of just like, you know, I think anybody. And, we can, and we can keep it vague, but when you say decisions, do you mean artistic or professional or? Professional, professional. You know, there was, there was, an, yeah, professional. And, and it, you know, as you know, it goes hobby, passion, and then profession. And when, and finally when we hit this profession level, I was just kind of like, okay. I don't feel like we're all taking on this. We're not all thinking alike. And so I'm going to stop there. So so that was the phase one. Um, and then the phase two, I think, for me happened at um, – so, so kind of from that moment, I realized I've got to not watch out for myself and I've got to take care of myself. It was more kind of like just that, just the Duff McKagan saying I've got a plan for the future. So from there, 
I started a, a little record label to put out my mm-hmm. side, Danker mm-hmm. and Brand. I, I started, uh, you know, I was really invested with some friends into this thing called Faceless International as a nonprofit. I was helping them with marketing. Um, I was, uh, and I was getting my master's degree at that time. And that's when I started to get my master's degree. I realized that like I could be in this for another week, for another five years, 10 years. I just don't know. So I need to start like chess moving and playing three moves ahead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was a bum out for everybody else in the band because it definitely looked like my um, my focus was not primarily on Amberlynn, but honestly it wasn't. That was kind of, uh, that was just not the way I viewed it anymore. Um, so so that's kind of the, the initial like, okay, planting some seeds in the ground. I need to start working on a, a plan B. And then I remember exactly where we were. I was in Los Angeles, California. We were playing a show for K-Rock. I was standing outside with my manager. Which if I people went, don't know, they're listening. K-Rock is the most influential rock radio station in the yes. country. And, and was, you know, it was responsible for breaking a lot of bands in the alternative sort yes. of scene. And they do big festivals here in California. And, including, yeah. including Amberlynn. Amberlynn mm-hmm. would not be where we are. I would not be sitting here maybe perhaps talking to you if it was not for K-Rock pushing through Feel Good Drag to number one, which everyone else jumped on the yes, band and, that, and I should point that out, too, that that's, kind of, that's how it works in the music industry. If, if you get traction at K-Rock, that's when the other rock radio, the whole format then looks at you and goes, oh, okay, that, it's, the, it's the cred that you need. Yeah, it's for them the to take a chance. We call it tastemaker. They are the taste, the yeah. tastemaker in in rock radio. So, um, so we were. I was standing there. We were just about to play a show for them. I cannot remember which one in particular. I'm sure if I just like, did some we, quick. Weenie roast or Inland Invasion or one of those like, things. Yeah. Um, I was standing outside with him, and I knew that like we were we would ju- we just released Dark Is the Way. Uh, with Brendan O'Brien produ- producing, and I knew how much that cost. Yeah. And uh, Stone Temple said, Pilots, and you know all these huge K Rock records had been done by Brendan O'Brien. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Raging uh, the Machine, I think. Oh, yeah, you you name it. And so, and so we're standing outside of this K Rock event, and I knew that my my A&R would talk to me a lot more than he would talk to you know let's say the manager or but it, but it'd be more like you know even the more than the band. He put a lot. He loved to put pressure on me. I don't know why, but he would just say things like. Man, if if you if this record fails, it's on your back and on your shoulders. I'm just kind of like, thanks, guy. But he said, you know, he nice. said to me, basically, yeah, this record will look like this will be a failure if it sells less than 19,000 first week. And and in my mind, that was completely doable because our other records had sold 30,000 plus the the prior three records, 30,000 plus first week. And so it seemed doable. I had put in the extra work. I put in the effort. But then you got to remember, this is the initial years of, you know, um, Apple Music, mm-hmm. YouTube, and Spotify, you know, and obviously we we're post Napster, kind of late stage LimeWire. Um, but I, I thought for sure we could definitely beat 20,000. Know, and this is when my- you're still talking about, like, we got to get in the circular on the Powerwall at Best Buy. And, you yeah. know, if we can if we can be a loss leader and they can sell it for, you know. I remember it was when the Sayosin record came out and it was four ninety nine at Best Buy. You know, it was like the most yeah. convoluted, like we're gonna force a big first week. Yeah. All the tricks and the fans aren't aware, all this shenanigans that, that go on oh, behind the scenes. It's deep. Well, we sold seventeen thousand one hundred and I knew, you know, because, you know, and the the band we always talked the the drummer Nate and I always talked about, like, we wanted to leave the band right here. Mm. 
We were not going to be in back in the van, curmudgeon old 50 year olds, like yeah. kids, you know, I wish they would, you know, that stupid yeah. music. I can't, why yeah. were they mad, mad, mad about the band that opened for you two years ago that now you're opening for? Yeah. We're not, yeah. we're not going to do that, you yeah. know, and that's kind of led us to why we quit when we quit was just getting, but I felt like that was at that second I was here. I, would, I had I had reached as high. I had done the you know like you said you know we are you know your analogy was we were in a five thousand room and we had we were top ten single and we did we had a top five single on K Rock um, you know at that moment and I just knew the writing is on the wall and from that moment on you know I loved being in the band those four, those first years up to that second because it felt like every week there was a new phone call. Guess what? Lincoln Park wants to take you out. Guess what? You know, Mike Kim wants to take you out. Guess how many records you sold. Can you believe it? You know, this, this, this. And that was the moment where it was like, it was few, the phone calls got fewer and fewer and fewer. And you just kind of like. And now instead of the conversations about how are we going to manage all of this exciting stuff around us, it becomes what are we going to do about all this stuff around it? You know, it's like it immediately is just yeah. the tone of everything just changes on a dime. Yeah. It was a very proactive band. And then it suddenly in that moment became reactionary, you know, like, mm, I don't gosh, know that's such a good way to put it. The different, yes, that's the, the thing. That's the turning point from yep. proactive to reactionary. Yeah. Now you're reacting to things. And I don't know if any of the other guys put all that together. And I only, I don't even know if I mentioned that to my, manager i know i said something in that moment in that moment i was just kind of like okay kyle well that's it you know i don't remember what i said but i remember alluding to it you know that that was the yeah. the, the, the moment and I, I probably could just figure out the exact date of of amberlin's pinnacle and, and you know meteoric not fall but just kind of like the descension yeah. because i mean all i have to do is look at the first and again yours of- was way less severe than a hundred other bands we could talk about but when oh, you're for- living it and it's your the number one thing in your life, you know, in earthly life anyway, um, you're not thinking about like, oh, you're not thinking about the thousand bands you have it better than. You're thinking oh. about the ten bands that have it better than you. That's just the nature of it, you know? That's oh, just... Of course, man. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were, listen, we were at K, I remember because we were at a K-Rock event and we were just leaving to go to like Sweden or Europe the next day or something like crazy like that. So, I mean, I was... I was living in a in a parallel universe that my actions were like, whoa, we're living high, but my insides were just like, okay, well, that's and that's it. And you know, we had a couple other records after that, and they did great. Sure. I mean, they did fine. We were on, you know, just you know, lowborn and vital, and put out a B sides kind of devotion. So I mean, there was other records. It wasn't like that. Of same. course, of course. But I attribute that to uh, a non meteoric rise. The worst thing a band can do is have a massive first record. Mm-hmm. You have to be this where people can get to know you and get, you know, fall in love with you. And then you can have a slow decline. You do this and everything's reactionary. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Sell your soul. Oh, you're done. You know, yes. So, yes. You, you know, build a slow growth fan base, man, you know, let them know you by name and you know, where and they'll you're... stick around and be interested in everything that you have to say and do creatively as an artist, as things go forward, 
Pardon the interruption, I just have a quick non-profit question for you. Are you registered to vote? Millions of people get purged from the voter rolls every year, so everybody should be checking their registration status every single year. Deadline to register to vote in some states is as early as October 4th, so you want to make sure you check before then. Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day. Again, you can register to vote at Headcount. And now back to the show. That transition in your life from, okay, Amberlynn is the thing that is my full-time focus and the other things in my life are the side projects, so to speak, musically and otherwise. And when that transitional moment occurred where you were like, okay, Amberlynn can no longer be, you know, the, the forward-facing, all-consuming day-to-day, I need to put my focus elsewhere and, and, and just kind of walk me through what that transition was like for you and, you know, coming to that conclusion and and what led you to, uh, you know, what you inevitably ended up doing in, in place of it, so to speak. Yeah. You know, for me personally, I think if you you asked each of the individual members of Amberlynn, I think we'd all have five different stories about how it ended and why it ended. Uh, but I can only speak for myself. I, um, it was a, it was a, I was fighting two wars and losing both at the same time. And I was just getting so tired that I ended up, you know, laying down my weapons. I mean, and so basically, you know, my family, my wife, and it didn't like the band and it's not nothing personal. It's not like those guys are right. It's not, you know, nothing personal. It was just, I was constantly gone. And if I wasn't gone, you know, I was songwriting or I was doing interviews or, you know, I've, I've got, okay, we're going to do just a quick fly out or, you know, cr- you know, someone's flying in so we can, we can songwrite. Um, and so it, it just, she just stopped enjoying the band. I mean, it's just, especially like we had had our first kid in 2011 and our second in 2013. And so here I'm widowing and orphan, orphaning, uh, you know, this family for seven to nine months a year. And it's just, you know, it just got to the point where, you know, everything I did for her <clears throat> and for good reason was she just, you know, I hate it. You know, hated it. I cannot believe you're going back to the UK. I can't believe. Are you serious? Another Australian run. And years prior would have been like, yes, that's so cool. Congratulations. I can go do my own thing and you can do your own thing. And, you know, we'll, I will see you when you get back or I'll come with you or let's go, you know. And so it just got heavier and heavier and heavier every day that it increased. And the same with the band. They were just like, you know, you know, I was the only one uh, that was, you know, I was the first one to be married. I was the first one to have kids. And, and trying to explain children to those who don't have children is a very hard task. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you know, sitting sitting there saying like, no, but first words are so important or first steps are memorable or, you know, and um, it's it, I just couldn't do it. And I, I dreaded leaving. Like I, I was not looking forward to the next tour. I was not looking forward to leaving the house. I was not looking forward to packing my bags, you know? And when I was on tour, I almost had to go into a comatose emotional state where I didn't care. I didn't care about the family back at home. Not, not realistically, but you know what I'm saying? Like you almost yeah. had to shut down emotionally so that the pains of, um, of leaving uh, were, you know, were manageable at best. And it just got to the point where, you know, the band was upset that I kept vetoing tours. My wife is upset that I'm actually taking tours. And and after, I would say, like a couple years stint of this, I was just torn in the middle. You know, I'm, I'm just sitting here 
thinking, you know, to myself, all right, uh, you know, here I had a dad that traveled a lot when I was young. You know, he, he got off the roof when I was about 16 years old. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, I'm, 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 I'm him. I'm recreating a scenario in which I'm absent from my children's life. And there's some of the most memorable moments of it. And uh, honestly, man, this is the first time I've ever told anybody this. <laughs> and it's just real. Yeah. It's just real. And I think I that it. somebody else out there can, can, you know, glean from it. Exactly. And so about, about 2013, I just realized like, okay, you know, I was in, I was in the O2 arena in London and uh, you know, it was an incredible tour. We were, you know, just having, you know, obviously living the, the dream and I'm just, I'm miserable. I'm, and I'm sitting there and I, and I was with a guy in the band, Joey. And I was like, Joey, dude, I'm done. Like I'm done. I just, I, I can't do this anymore. And he didn't, you know, you know, I don't know what his re reaction should have been or could have been, but he just, he just nodded his head like, as if like he knew and everyone knew. And I was the only one that didn't know, you know? And, um, so I went back and talked to the drummer and, and just said, Hey man, this is what I'm thinking. This is how I feel. And he was like, dude, got it. Like, you know, Joey was passionate about becoming a producer and Nate was, was excited about starting King State Coffee and, and uh, the other two guys were, you know, Christian and Dion. Uh, they were. It was tough. It was tough for them because, you know, again, this is something we all worked our whole lives for, and it's in our laps. And we're making incredible money, and we're touring, and we're, we're, you know, on a great record label. And it just, it just seemed like this could go on. This could just continue. And so, it was tough on them. And uh, and, but I think at the back of their heads, they understood. And so since that time. Um, since that time, like a few of them have had kids and one of the members came up to me and was just like, dude, how did you do it? And I was like, dude, I <laughs> like, yeah. and I was like, honestly, I didn't though. I didn't do it. You know, I emotionally was unavailable for everyone. And I had to call, I, you know, five, about four years had passed after Emberlin, uh, had, had quit. And I called each one of the guys and I said, Hey man, I just want to apologize profusely for the last two years of being in that band, like, you know, 13 and 14, I was unavailable. Like I, you know, I mean, I, I, I played my heart out. I wrote my heart. Out. I, I worked as hard as anyone else. And, you know, never, never was there a moment on stage where I just, you know, half-assed or something like that. I, I gave it all. But man, emotionally, I would just, I was not present. You know, I wasn't present for my wife. I wasn't present for my bandmates and i just had to call and just say i'm so sorry i checked out i checked out emotionally spiritually physically i you know i would you know everybody's you know it's the last year of tour and they're going to see the city and one last time and moscow and one last time here and one last and i'm like in my bunk and i'm just staring at the ceiling i feel like you know just exhausted you know and um, even that last night of Amberlynn, we were, you know, the last night of being professionals. I mean, that's that's how I view it. Last night of my career being based in music, um, you know, was in Orlando, Florida. It was the last show that Amberlynn played. And at the end of the show, I collapsed to my knees with my face on the stage. And it wasn't theatrics. It literally was not theatrics. I wasn't trying to be emotional and cry for everybody. Dude, I, I just collapsed. I was exhausted. I literally, if they could have just quietly exited, I probably could have slept for a solid 10 hours at that mm. second, just mm -hmm. because I was just emotionally and, and everything. It was just a relief, you know, just that the war was over. 
and um, you know, and that's and that's nothing. I hope that doesn't come across negative about the guys in the band oh, or gosh, my wife. Not at all. It's not me. At all. It's it's me. I I I assume assume responsibility, and um, and so anyway. I think that, you know, since then I've had many, many, I've had chances to talk to many different artists, you know, and, and some of them were new fathers and some of them were married and, and, and planning on having, and I just had to tell them my experience. And, and a few of them like, you know, heeded the advice not to quit, but there's got to be balance. There yes. just has to be, there's got to be yin and yang. There's got to be some type of Zen where you can look at the other person and just say, I may not understand your situation, but I care enough to, to see this band last three or four more years. How much time do you need off? You know? Yes. Yes. So, and, and we weren't to the level where the band could have said, hey, Stephen, we see you struggling. We're going to rent a second bus and you and your family follow us around the country. I mean, that would have been the ideal situation. Yeah. I mean, that would have been, well, we just couldn't afford it. You know, that was out of the realm of financially uh, being able to you know, physically be responsible and make money at the end of the day. So, you know, I just I just encourage anybody, any band out there, man, if you don't want to burn that member out, you know, and then I would highly suggest figuring, sitting down with the families, like get your wife, get your family. And if you're single, get get there anyway and understand that someday you're going to you may be at this table in a different band or in a different you know outlook. But um, uh, but but just sit down and empathize and, and really just understand that. That the bands come and go. We are not U2. We are not Rolling Stones by or Metallica by any stretch of the imagination. But the person that that they said I do to hopefully will be there for the remainder of their life. Long, long after Amberlin is dead, I'll be holding my wife's hand. And I, you know, and 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 same with any other band member out there. Understand that there are things that are going to matter so much more down the road. And memories that you won't be able to take back. I was fine not going to my, my family's graduations or celebrating birthdays or, you know, I missed my grandfather's funeral. I mean, that, that crushed me. We were in Brazil and I missed his funeral and his, and, his, and, and, but I was fine cashing that in. But then when you have your own family, you you know, it's just kind of, it's, we're playing, we're, we're, we're playing with bigger stakes uh, than 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 just you know a few you know uh, candles being blown out. I, I can't tell. First of all, your pastoral experience shines through, and that amazing advice you just gave. Um, but secondly, yeah, I, I to one of your points specifically, even from a pragmatic, you know, the most selfish of people in a band, um, pure business standpoint, it's like ask yourself the question. Would you rather get another year, year and a half of go, 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 constant road dog, never ending cycle, and then the band implodes? Or would you rather ease back on the gas pedal, come up with some balance, come up with a way that works for everyone, even if it's not how you personally want to do it, and thereby ensure some kind of greater longevity, which I think ultimately is only really possible that way. I mean, even, you know, like you said, you're not... You too, you're not the Stones, you're not Metallica. Even Metallica, the biggest heavy band in the world, got to a place where they will only tour two weeks on and two weeks off. They set up a home base and fly in and out of each show. You know, if they're if they're doing Europe, they they build a camp in Paris and, you know, make all those little short flights. And obviously that requires a huge financial windfall to be able to do that but it's like even at that level 
even those guys were like, we have our our wives and kids have to come first, you know, or at least be equal. And that's, yeah, you know, it, it's not sustainable otherwise. And how many people have we known in bands, you know, watching the cycle where when you're starting your band, you're 16, 17, and, and you know, at that time, you can't envision doing anything else. It's all you want to do. It's your dream. And you would be happy to eat ramen and sleep on floors as long as you can play shows yeah. and, and, and make records. And Absolutely. And there's a romance to that and there's a glory to it, but inevitably everyone is going to hit that speed bump, whether it's early twenties, mid twenties, late twenties, early thirties, where they're going to say, Hey, I, there are other things that I need from my life. And, you know, do I have to give this up entirely or is there a way to make this work and still be able to chase my artistic muse, but do things that are more fulfilling. And a lot of times, you, you know, when, people hear conversations like this one a lot of what they hear is you know we got to pay the bills you know and you're choosing the the nine to five over the i don't think that's what either one of us is talking about at all no 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 no. it's more about other ways of of being fulfilled as a human you know it's too much pressure to put on your outlet as a band if that's your only source of happiness or fulfillment. you know and also like it's also a lesson to bands to work smarter and not harder I mean, it's, this is 2020. Dude, jump online, do an online exclusive show, you know, do multiple streams of income is where it's at. Start a clothing line, you know, there's, or, or, you know, it's, you know, make it to where, you know, you find overseas outlets that, that pay, you know, instead of going to tour Indonesia and some places in the Philippines, why don't you play one massive festival in Japan? You know, why don't you, you know, you just strategize better. Also, like, do do acoustic rendition of your last record or do mix, you know, remixes of it. You've got to just figure out ways that in which the band can monetize to allow you. Because really, man, it's passion is elusive. Passion is like you've got to keep, you know, the the powers of being. I'm saying the band members passionate about what they're doing as soon as it becomes a job then the fans are going to notice from the stage presence. The fans are going to notice through the songwriting. It's just going to feel the whole, the whole outfit's going to feel phoned in. It's about being authentic and real. People want that people. And so find different ways, you know, there's, you know, cameo right now is, you know, for 20 bucks, you can have somebody, you know, say hi to your girlfriend, dude, that's great. Then do something like that. There's got to be multiple streams instead of saying, man, if we, you know, listen, we can't keep our merch guy on retainer. Uh, unless we play, you know, the next four months in a row, right. no one's going home. You know, it's just kind of like, dude, then let's let's get him off retainer, introduce him to some other bands, have him go out with them. In the meantime, like I, we just got to figure out, you got to make it exci- life exciting and passionate and full of purpose. And man, it's it's uh, there's there, it's 2020. They have you have no excuse to try to find out, find it. You know, your management has no excuse to try to figure out a different uh, stream of income. Especially it's a pandemic forcing everyone to <laughs> catch yeah. up to this idea that you're talking about. And also, uh, I think there's something to be said as an artist for having some other lived experiences to draw on from and be inspired by. If at a certain point, if your entire life is nothing but the touring and album cycle, 
you're going to run out of things to talk about <laughs> in a way. Yeah, you, know you what I mean? really are. Yeah, I mean, someone once said, you have your entire life to write your first record. And it's so true. Yeah. But when you get down to your fifth and you've been in the bus for seven years, no one wants to hear back at it and back out on the road again and, you know, <laughs> wheeling yeah. and dealing. I mean, just nobody wants to hear that record. So yeah. you've got to go live life. You've got to be inspired. And some of these things that we think of as these you know, these, uh, these opportunities that are impossible to ignore, I would advise people to really examine those as well, where it's like, okay, we got offered this tour with this massive band that we all grew up listening to, but then it's like, okay, but really break it down. Because if you're playing at 7 PM in an amphitheater, that's 10% full, you know, if you're only allowed yeah. to sell two t-shirts and you have to price match them at 30 bucks each and, and, yeah. and even the maybe the band's massive and influential, but they're just playing the hits. And even a receptive crowd might be like, oh, this opening band's cool. And that's as far as it goes. <laughs> you know, they're, yep. they're, never, yeah. they're not going to give you a second thought ever again. Um, you yep. know, it's like really look at those. You know, it's like it might look super cool on a piece of paper, but then it's like, you, dude, exactly like you said, work smarter, not harder. You know, you don't need to take every one of those things because – the thing that's less sexy might ultimately end up being more rewarding by every measure. So, yep. Absolutely. Friend. Very cool. Well, that, uh, I think that, that does it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we could get out, we could leave with a higher note than that. So yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty perfect. That is so amazing. And I appreciate your, your candor and, um, you know, being open about all this stuff, because I think to your point, absolutely. Someone's going to hear this, at that exact moment when they needed to, you know, Good. Cause yeah, because that, that's the thing with 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 bands, especially in that whole cycle. Nobody tells you <laughs> this might be as good as it gets. Let's make some plans. Yeah, because those, so true. those people are fired. You know, you, don't, yep. you, you bands only want everyone around them. That's like it's only it's going to keep going up. It's still going forever. Yep, you're right. So, um, well, Stephen, thank you so much. And thank you again for making the time. I greatly appreciate it, and I'll yeah. make, I'll make sure that uh, you know everything surrounding the episode has all the info about Anchor and Braille and everything cool. you've got going on, and where people can find you and all that stuff. So incredible! And listen, man, if you're ever in Florida, let's hang out. Dude, you know, I would love that. I'll, I'll, that would be rad. That'd be so cool. I'm sure we have plenty of war stories to go back and forth about. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, yeah, and there's a great little. It was unintentional how this happened, but there's a great little succession of tooth and nail episodes in route because i have i have yours in the bank i have spencer from under oath in the bank and i just did another one with ryan clark which is our the first repeat guest nice so. dude ryan clark is a man he's a hero that guy he's so intelligent on multitude of levels i just theologically like i feel like creative wise like he, he's 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 up to, he's a, a, a exclusive man he's up there could not, so that's could awesome. not agree more could not agree more um, very cool well cool man yeah go spend some time with your family right. and, and yeah you got and, it. and definitely if, um, next you know when we're all traveling around a little bit more and next time I'm your way I would love to hang out for sure sounds good Ron awesome we'll Thanks, talk Steven. soon alright bro yes sir bye bye, bye.